can turn back to Philippians chapter 3 as we continue our study there. One more thing I'll mention while you are turning there is I'd encourage you to um, keep up with our scripture reading as a church family. Some of you have made comments to me or are enjoying it. I trust you're enjoying the book of Matthew. And uh, um, I trust it's a good point of conversation for your families. And when you begin reading through the scriptures and meditating on it, there's a lot of good stuff in these first chapters of Matthew, is there not? As we, um, I think this week we should be about through chapter 12, according to schedule in the bulletin. So I'd continue to uh, keep up and as we try to read the New Testament through in the Psalms this year. Philippians chapter 3. This passage which talks about a pursuit reminded me of something recently. And uh, maybe you remember the cartoon character Elmer Fudd. And I have no idea he popped into my head. But if you watched Looney Tunes at all when you're young, I don't know if I'm dating myself, but I always liked Elmer Fudd. Maybe because he reminded me of myself in some ways. But one thing about Elmer Fudd, he, he had, he always had a shotgun in his head. Every time you see him, doesn't he? He has a shotgun. Because he had a pursuit. He says he, was, he always was hunting wascally rabbits. That was his pursuit. Every picture you see him, whether it was Donald Duck or, or, um, or Daffy Duck or Bugs Bunny, I should say, he was always in pursuit. He was in the hunt. That was his passion. That's what, that was, that's what you associate with his character, was the pursuit of these two other wascally characters in his cartoon. And it reminds me of this passage in the sense that Paul here has a singular passion. He mentions in the passage we study when he says, this one thing I do. We saw that last time. There's one, was one pursuit I have. And that was the goals that God has for me. And it begs the question, as Paul lays before us this example, what is our greatest pursuits in life? Now, we have many pursuits, many things we are occupied with and things we enjoy of all that God has given us in life. But the greatest, this one thing, Paul says, this one thing I cling to above everything else was the pursuit of being like Christ. And we have to ask ourselves, has Jesus captured our heart's attention? Is that our singular pursuit? And it's reflected, by the way, in where, we, in where and how we invest our time and attention. And we know the Bible tells us, of course, to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Now in verse 14 of this chapter where we left off, Paul said, mentions here, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And there's an intensity of purpose in this word, isn't there? This means more than a casual pursuit, this press, this pressing that he mentions here. The pressing towards. It's, this is more in line of a full court press. This is, this is something he is pursuing. And we see that throughout that passage that we looked at last time. The determination of Paul to one thing to, one thing to do is to pursue is to pursue Christ-likeness in his life and the glory of Christ. He mentions in verse 11, he says, if by any means. In verse 12, he says, I press on. In verse 13, he says, this one thing I do. In verse 13, he says, he's reaching forward. And here, of course, in verse 14, we find the fact that he is pressing towards this pursuit of holiness and Christ-likeness to which God has called us. And we understand that God in his grace has provided all that we need for holy living. And Paul here is determined to grow in that grace and, 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 and appropriate the provisions that God has given for us to, to, to live victorious and fruitful lives. 
And Paul's determination here in this passage is in spite of the fact that he hadn't attained. He was not yet perfected. In spite of sins, in spite of flaws and failures, Paul was pursuing that. And therefore, we saw last time two sides of this pursuit. We first saw Paul's passion and his desire to grow in grace and be like Christ. The second also we saw here is the reality, in all honesty, we fall short in life. Paul says, I have not yet been perfected. I haven't attained. And, he, and, and the Bible understands or tell, teaches us that God understands that we are slow progress in growth, that we, have, that, we, that we do not attain while we are here on the earth. And I'm reminded of that wonderful psalm of mercy in Psalm 103, where we're to- told in verse 13 and 14, as a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame, he remembers that we are dust. He knows we have these shortcomings and failures and flaws, and yet he is in the process of helping, to, helping us to become more Christ-like in spite of those things. And Paul says, I'm not going to let those things discourage me. I'm going to forget what's behind. I'm going to keep pursuing growth in grace, Christ-likeness, and faithful service for our Savior as God would work in him daily. And I think Paul's laying that before us because that kind of determination is needed. This one thing I do kind of determination, if by any means kind of determination, because there are so many things that can distract us. There's a lot of reasons to throw in the towel, just to give up. Or maybe to join the, the too often neutral Christian crowd who just coast along. And, and you know what comes after neutral? Comes, re- comes reverse or park if you're going that direction on your shifter. And Paul was clinging to that pursuit that I'm going to know him. There, and, there, and, and, and we have to ask ourselves, is there a one thing discipline and determination in our lives that we, you and I ought to cling to in order, in order to grow as God would grow us? For Elmer Fudd, it was his shotgun. This one thing I'm going to grab a hold of every day. And it may be his funny looking hunting hat. For you and I as a believer, it is the things God has afforded us for our growth. It's time in the word, Christian fellowship with other believers, time in prayer. And there's an urgency to that in the New Testament. Turn with me, to, if you will, to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10. The Lord laid this verse on my heart as I was considering this because there's an urgency to these things in our lives because Satan is urgently trying to distract us and destroy us. And we need to cling to the things of God that God might continue moving us forward in our growth and development. Verse 22 of Hebrews 10 says, Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he is faithful who promised. And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. We see that theme in the book of Hebrews. So much the more as you see the day approaching. There's an urgency. There's a day coming when it'll, when it'll be too late to win the lost of Christ. There's a day coming in which, which evil is going to wax worse and worse, and the love of many are going to grow cold, that people are going to be without natural affection, and this world is going to become increasingly dark, and Christians are going to become increasingly apathetic. There's an urgency that's communicated here, and it's the same urgency Paul communicates back, if you go back to Philippians, in Philippians chapter 3. 
This one thing I do, there's one thing I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pursue over all things in life, and that is to become like Christ. Now he says here in verse 14, he says, I press towards that goal for the prize of the upward call in Christ Jesus. Well, we know Paul's there, he says, I have a goal in mind, and it's going to be is associated with the upward call, referring to the time when we go to be with Christ, when we see him face to face. When we go, with, go to see him, we're going to be like him. 1 John 3, 2 and 3 say this, Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is, and everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he, Christ, is pure. And so here we find this idea that when we go to be with Christ, we're going to be like him. And while this passage might have primarily the glorified body, Christ-like body in view, the, the, the reference to purity in, in verse 4 indicates it may be in referring, really in referral to our whole being. And so back in Philippians 3, he says, I press towards that goal. That's going to be realized at the upward call. Now, Paul's not saying that I'm going to achieve, achieve heaven by my good works. We know Paul is a champion of the grace of God. He repeatedly clarifies that salvation is not by works of our own in any way, shape, or form. Salvation is a free gift from God. The goal or the mark, as the King James Version says, was, a was, was was to be accomplished, was something he wanted accomplished before the upward call, this idea of maturity. He wanted to accomplish that goal. But he says in verse 14, he says, I, want to, I press for the goal for the prize. He has a prize in mind. That's the goal he's mentioning in this verse. Well, in the context, we understand Paul's been, been seeking to obtain, attain, realize, lay hold of the Christ-likeness that God is seeking to accomplish in him, here he makes a specific reference to a prize. Now the word prize is a word that's used in regards to a, a crown as we know it in the scriptures. Vine's dictionary def defines the word this way. He says a prize bestowed in connection with the games. The word prize is referred to the prize that those who are involved in the what we might call the Olympic games of those days would receive. In 1 Corinthians 9, we're reminded of that, verse 24, where it says, Do you not know that those who run in the race all run, but one receives the prize? And the prize is often a crown, which we see referred to in the scriptures. Run in such a way that you may obtain it. And that's, so there, that, that's the same word used in Philippians chapter 3. So what Paul has in view at the upward call, when he goes to be with his Savior, he's, he's shifting from, from the Christ-likeness desire of the previous verses to the prize of a crown, which represents the favor of his Savior, the approval of his Savior, the smile of his Savior, the well done, the good and faithful servant which came from his Savior. And therefore, Paul said at the end of his life, near the end of his life, in 2 Timothy 4, verses 7 and 8, he says, I have fought a good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Finally, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day, and not to me only, but to also to all who have loved his appearing. And so when Paul is, is talking about a prize, he's talking about a crown. When at the upward call, the time when he goes to be with the Lord, he's pressing on towards Christ-likeness, 
But in, in the faithful pursuit, he recognizes that God is going to reward him. In verse 14 in a Holman Christian Standard Bible is stated this way. I pursue as my goal the prize promised by God's heavenly call in Christ Jesus. So Paul is saying here he was pursuing the favor. And God gives crowns for various reasons in the scripture. And we won't study that this morning, but it is a good study. God rewards for faithfulness. And that's just contrary to the fact that heaven is a gift, but rewards are given for faithful living. And even that, in some ways, is a product of God's grace, are they not? God's crowns? Because God is the one who saves us, rescues us. God is the one who equips us, enables us. God is the one who gifts us. God is the one who empowers us. God is the one who instructs us. All we have to do is be willing to be used by God, and God rewards us for that willingness to do his will. And that's what Paul was looking for. That was the prize. He wanted to get to heaven and hear, well done, thou good and faithful servant, that he was pursuing. And part of that passion that he had in his sights was a pursuit of Christ-likeness would equate to then the prize of the favor or the smile of a Savior when he saw him face to face. It's kind of a sobering thing, isn't it? You know, many of us fear the judgment seat because maybe we look at the, the sorry side of our lives. The wood, hay, and stubble, as it's put in that passage. But in reality, it's an opportunity for God to say thank you for willing service, for faithful service, for pursuit of himself in our lives. So really, the simplicity in this passage is an attitude of, of Paul's, a passion of Paul's, that he's laying before us, the, the intense determination to pursue God's will, God's way, God's glory, God's honor, Christ-likeness. And it's a pursuit that we so often get away from for some reason, isn't it? We, as I mentioned earlier, we so easily sometimes slide into neutral. And then to reverse and then to park in our lives. We just go through the motions. Paul is really encouraging us to maintain that intimacy as, as Jude puts it, puts it in reference to the last days, keep yourselves in the love of God. Keep that relationship vital and fresh. Keep the pursuit of the Savior. You know, sometimes couples sit around after they've been married for 30, 40, 50 years and, and says, remember what it was like when we first met? What love was like when it was fresh? Jehovah says that about Israel and Jeremiah. I remember your youth and the love of your espousals. And that's what Paul is saying here. Keep it fresh and keep it real in pursuit of the Savior. Hang on to that. The one thing I do, by any means, I'm going to continue in that pursuit. Well, then he goes to verse 15, and he says, when he, when he tells us, here, therefore, and of course, therefore, links back and looks ahead, both. He says, therefore, let as many as are mature have this mind, and if anything you think otherwise, God will reveal even this to you. Therefore, as many as mature have this mind, he says. He's challenging then these believers to have this same attitude. I think some versions use the word attitude. He wants you and I and the readers of, of this epistle to adopt the mindset demonstrated in his testimony. To, make, to have this one, the same one thing discipline in, in a passion to know and live Christ. To pursue holiness and faithful, faithfully serving him. This should be the passion of the saints. This is what should characterize our life. And we sometimes forget and think we're here on vacation rather than on a mission in our 70 years here or so, or, or a few more, hopefully, are intended to be used for God's glory, and our rest and our glory may, will come later, will it not, when we, are, when we are seated in his glory in heaven. But he writes this then to, he does address this in verse 15, 
to those that are mature. Notice he says that. Therefore, as many as are mature. Some versions use the word perfect. It is the same root, comes from the same root word as the word perfected in verse 12. But the Paul uses the term in a different sense here. In verse 12, it says, I haven't yet been perfected. He's looking towards the completion of when he gets to be with the Lord. I'm, I haven't attained. That's the point. He says, I haven't attained that I'm not going to obtain. I'm pressing towards that goal, but I haven't attained. He's using that in a sense of the completed perfection. We sang about that in complete in thee when we stand before his throne. We stand in his righteousness. We got the, that work will be complete. Here, he uses that term in a sense of maturity. As many as are mature, referring to a growth process. Those who have grown in the Lord in the process towards Christ-likeness. Those maybe who are willingly engaged in that process. And because we understand maturity is a process, and that's what Paul's describing in his testimony. He says, I haven't attained, but I'm growing, I'm pursuing, I'm cooperating with God's program of growth in my life. And that's what God wants for all of us. We, and we ever, we, as I think I mentioned this last time, that we ought not to be content with the status quo of our Christian life because we haven't attained. 1 Peter 5.10 says, But may the God of all grace, who called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after you have suffered a while, perfect, mature, establish, strengthen, and settle you. Maturity here refers to, the, to an increasingly stable and consistent walk with God. That's what God is doing. And there are so many verses. First Thessalonians 12, excuse me, 3, verses 12 and 13 say, And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love to one another and to all, just as we do to you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness. And that's, that's growth, isn't it? Before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. That's what God is seeking to do in our lives. Growth in loving and holy living. And of course, that admonition of the church in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 12 and 13, where pastors are given for the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a perfect man, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. God is in the process of growing us. We understand that, do we not? And that, and that process has a goal. It's to be like Christ. Jesus is the pattern that the master potter is forming you and I into. He's shaping us to be like Christ. And so then you and I ought to submit to, his, to the potter's hands in order that we might become mature. So here in Philippians chapter 3, he's referring to in this verse, in verse 15, to those who have been shaped, at least begun to have been shaped, who are being shaped, who are becoming mature, those who have grown in their lives because they are engaged in the process of maturity that God has brought into their lives. We also recognize, and we might must know it, that perfect in the scripture, scriptures is also used in refer, referring to a heart that is right before God. Turn with me to Psalm 101. We read there in our scripture reading, so maybe your Bible will fall right back open to it. Psalm 101. Well, here the term is used in a sense of not sinlessness, but the sense of, of a right heart before God. In verse 2 of Psalm 101, the psalmist says this, I will behave wisely in a perfect way. Or when will you come to me? I will walk within my house with a perfect heart. 
And he's not saying that I am going to be completely sinless, but he says my, that my heart is right with you. My heart is perfect towards you. And what does that mean? Well, I believe that means that a, that a person's heart is right before God in regards to confession of sin. It's a right heart response of confession when he points out our sin. And God will do that. And to have a perfect heart towards God means when God points out sin in our lives, we confess, which means to agree with God. It means to say the same thing. It means that, yeah, you were right, God. I was wrong. That's what confession is. It's that, it's that surrender to the authority of God and, and a willingness to confess and say, I was wrong. And that's, a, that's having a right heart, a perfect heart towards God. It also is a heart of, of embracing the truth when taught by the Spirit. When the Spirit of God teaches us, and we have to, must remember that the Scriptures were given According to 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, we're given for, for instruction and for reproof. And sometimes the instruction is what, what reproves us. As we see the glory of Christ, we see the sinfulness of self. And that should reprove us. And our heart that is right agrees with God. When God puts his finger on a certain place in our life that says, this needs to go, buddy. This needs to change. And you can say, God, you're right. That doesn't mean we instantaneously change, but that we agree with God and seek by his grace to implement those changes in our lives. We surrender to him. That's what a perfect heart is. It's a heart that's willing to confess, a heart that's willing to embrace, a heart that's willing to surrender when he seeks to make changes in our lives. It says down here later in this, in verse 6, he says, my eyes shall be on the faithful of the land, God says, that they may dwell with me. He who walks in a perfect way, he shall serve me. Now, he's not asking for sinless perfection, but he has the idea of a heart that's right with God. That means there's nothing in my life that I haven't dealt with before God. Because that's where it begins, isn't it? We must agree with God. And to agree with God is that mark of maturity. That we say, okay, God, you're right. Now, if there's something in our lives that God has put our finger on and we've resisted, well, that's a whole other story. That's a mark of immaturity or carnality. But a, but a heart that agrees with God and desires to implement those changes, having that perfect heart towards God, is what God is after. And so the Bible uses it in that terms. That we, as God points out in our lives, areas that need to change, we confess, we embrace, we submit, and that is the mark of a perfect heart, a mark of maturity, one that is responding to and dealing with sin by God's grace and in his power. It's that honesty and transparency before God, that humble surrender to God as he helps me seek to overcome the flesh. And so mature Christians still struggle with the flesh. That's what we're saying here. Mature Christians still have the flesh in its weaknesses because when you mature in Christ, it doesn't mean the old man matures or changes. It's the new man that, that, that grows in the knowledge of him. And a mature person is one who is willing to deal with their sin. Someone might say, well, what about those things, other th areas in my life that need changing? That's not perfect. What about those areas that I might not even be, aw be aware of? What about mistakes that I may have made that I haven't realized? What about things that I have done that maybe they damaged others? Something I've said or done maybe brought damage to others. Well, if you go back to Philippians chapter 3, God answer, answers that concern for us. Here in verse 15, when he says, if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal this to you. 
That's God's job. And the Bible's reminding us what we're told back in verse 6 at the beginning of the book, that beginning of the book, where it says, being confident of this very thing, in chapter 1, verse 6, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it to the day of Christ. See, God has taken upon himself the responsibility for our growth. And he doesn't reveal our flesh to us all at once. Some commentators have said we'd, we'd faint over dead away if we really saw the wickedness of our heart. As Jeremiah 17, 9 says, our heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? And we don't know it until God reveals it to us. And he does so in his time, in his way, in his growth program for each of us because he's taken responsibility for our growth. And I know believers, I've known believers, who spend a lot of time worrying about their, what they've done. Forgetting that it's God's job to reveal when we've done wrong. 1 John 3, 20 and 21 remind us that we can rest in his parental care, that he's going to point out to us when we've been wrong. It says this, for if our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart. He knows all things. He already knows. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence towards God. And what he's saying is God knows when to open our eyes to, our, to, to ourselves. And when our heart condemns us, we deal with it. But if our heart is, 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 is not condemned, if the heart does not condemn us, if we don't feel guilty, if we, if, we, if we don't have anything we haven't dealt with, then we have confidence towards God. It's his responsibility to reveal to us our sin. And so instead of running around worrying about, did I do wrong? Am I carnal? Was that done in the flesh? Was that the right thing to do? God's basically saying here, chill out. It's not your responsibility. It doesn't mean that it's not sin. But it's the fact that God will reveal to us the thing we have to deal with. We need to deal with it and forget it, to put, us, put it behind us in his grace, to trust his promise to forgive and cleanse. And instead of stressing over potential failures, Rejoice in the Lord, because if you're stressing over potential failures, what have I done wrong, this, that, or the other thing, our eyes are in the wrong place. We're occupied with ourselves, and our, really it's our pride that is hating to admit that maybe we actually did something wrong. Well, you know what? If you know our flesh, our, we expect that when we're in the flesh, we're probably going to do something wrong. But that is God's job. We focus on our Savior. That's what we, fo we focus on. We rejoice in Him. And if in anything we're... Otherwise minded, God will reveal it to us. That's his job. It's delightful. That's his parental love and faithful care of us. In fact, let's go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 4, where this, this is addressed in another way. First Corinthians 4 verse 1 says this. Let a man so consider us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required in stewards that one be found faithful. And we're talking about faithful living, aren't we, here in Philippians 3. But verse 3, Paul sa says this, But with me it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by a human court, for in fact I don't even judge myself. And Paul says, go ahead and judge me if you want. He was dealing with criticism, people judging him. And he says, I don't care if the court judges me, because ultimately it doesn't matter. I don't even judge myself. What Paul's saying is that I don't look at yesterday and wonder and get all preoccupied and stress out over was that the right thing to do or the wrong thing to do. You entrust ourselves to a God who knows our hearts. He says, verse 4, for I know of nothing against myself. In other words, he says, my heart doesn't condemn me. I don't, if I did, I've dealt with it. Yet I'm not justified by this alone. Just because I don't know 
but he who judges me is the Lord. That's his responsibility to judge me and then to reveal to me and then to mold me when I've been wrong. And then when he does, we better deal with it. Therefore, verse 5, judge nothing before the time until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the hidden things of darkness and reveal the counsels of the hearts. Then each one's praise shall come from God. And he's saying the same thing he says in Philippians 3. God will reveal this to us if, if, we are, if we have done something that is out of line with the attitude he's describing in Philippians chapter 3, if you want to go back there. And so that's delightful. Now, if our heart does condemn us, if we know of something that is between us and God, then we need to deal with it, do we not? Because likely that's the Spirit of God being faithful to this prom these promises we've read to show, show me me and to, and to help me deal with it, whether it's a matter of confession, submission, surrender, or whatever it may be. That's the question. And that mark of maturity of a perfect heart is one who deals with the sin as God brings it to their attention. One who surrenders to change as God seeks to implement it in their lives by his grace and for his glory. So he says that on the heels of this, this testimony. You know, he says in verse 15, therefore, have the same attitude, but don't stress over your failures. Kind of the same thing he said in the previous passage. God's going to reveal to you. Keep looking up and looking, looking forward to the goodness that God has for you. And then he continues in verse 16 where he says, nevertheless. And he tells us in verse 16, here's what you do in the present. To the degree that you have already attained, let us walk by the same rule, let us be of the same mind. Now the, the last phrase of that verse may be absent in some of your Bibles, let us, let us be of the same mind. It's not in some of the manuscripts. Many think it's been transposed from a previous verse. And the idea here, uh, one version says, only let us hold true to what we have attained. And that's what's in view here. Let us, in the meantime, in the process of growth, here is something that is necessary as well. To hold true to what we have attained. Live what we've learned. The focus here is on things that God has already taught us, the point of maturity he's already brought us to, things he's revealed to us, things that we know to be right or wrong, things that sh attitudes that should be adopted, teachings that should be lived. That's what he's after. He says, live what you've learned. God has taken the time in his ministry and life and love to father us, to point out to us, to teach us. He says, now obey is what he's saying. Live what you already know. Obey what you know to be biblically true. And that's important because it speaks really to our sincerity. And it tells us that, I believe, in the implication here is we don't grow unless we, what we, we live what we already know. Because if we're not living what we already know, God's going to work on our willingness before he's going to teach us more. Before he's going to lead us onward, he's got to deal with the present surrender and submission in our lives. And that's important because we often come, come up with many excuses to not do the will of God. And sometimes we come across teachings that aren't popular to us, liked by us, and we find ways to justify. And we always find a holy way to justify disobedience. There's always a reason being kind or doing something good or some other consideration to dis disregard God. And you have to remember, the end never justifies the means. We have to live the means and let, leave the ends to God. Leave the results to God. Leave them in his hands. You're going to be surprised how he can protect and provide and lift up in our lives if we are willing to seek him first in our lives. And that's what that's saying here. 
And so if we're not to the degree we've already attained, where we have, what we've accomplished in our maturity, if we're not obeying that, then, then, then the rest of this is meaningless. So submission to God's word and what we've already learned is a prerequisite to growth and moving forward. And we really know from the scriptures that it's also a prerequisite to learning, in the, learning the truth in the first place. A willing heart is a prereq. John 7, 17, remember? If anyone wills to do his will, he shall know that concerning the doctrine, whether it is from God or whether I speak on my own, my own authority. The ability to discern between, between what is from God and what is from man is contingent on our willingness to do his will. And God will reveal what is his truth if we're willing to do it. That willing heart is threaded throughout these admonitions, isn't it? And many Christians are not growing because they're not responding to God's work of the Spirit and teaching them the truth in the first place. You know, a lot of Christians go to church and they like what they hear and they smile at the preacher and they shake his hand and they thank him. But what happens when they go out the door? They might be chewing the food, but are they swallowing it? Is it becoming, is it being producing the energy in our lives? Do we even think about what we learn when we leave, when we leave the room? 2 Corinthians 3.18 says this, But we all, all of us, with an unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. A wonderful verse about the work of the Spirit of God, that somehow he manages to transform us into the image of the Lord, just as we observe him in the mirror of the word. But there is a prerequisite here. It's called an unveiled face. And it's an illustration of an unveiled heart, of a willing heart to surrender to the word of God. And that's, that's, that, that's a prereq to, to growing to be like Christ, isn't it? It equates to submission, a willingness to be taught and a desire to be changed. And in fact, if you put it in Paul's termino term terminology, if by any means, this one thing I do to pursue that change in my life. I remember when I was a young person, when I was a teen and early young adult going to church, and you know, we like to come out of church sometimes and thought, boy, did I get ripped apart today. You know, just by way of funny way of putting it, but what that meant is that the scalpel of the word of God cut me today. As it ought. Because that's the effect of the Bible. If we haven't attained, now if you have attained, then you won't leave here wounded. But if you and I open the Bible for personal Bible reading, go to a Bible study, go to church without being wounded, because we've seen the glory of our Savior and ourselves in light of it, then, then there's a problem. Because that's what the Word of God does. It changes us gently from the loving hands of a father, but in our pursuit of holiness, it changes us. Let's turn to Hebrews chapter 5, if you would, please. We also see that many are not growing here because they have not lived what they've learned. They haven't lived, obeyed, surrendered to what they've attained to. These familiar verses on maturity in Hebrews chapter 5, at the end of the chapter, verse 12, says this, For though by this time you ought to be teachers, that means you need to be mature, you need someone to teach you again the first principles of the oracles of God, and you have come to need milk and not solid food. In other words, they, they've digressed. He says, for everyone who partakes only of milk is unskillful in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. Notice the centerpiece of this is our, is our relationship to the word. And it's those who are unskillful are babes because they, haven't, because they haven't used the word of God. Verse 14, 
Solid food belongs to those who are of full age, the mature, that is, those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. Evil. Many are growing, many are not growing because they are not living what they've learned. They are not using the word of God in, their, in our lives. God is faithfully at work in our lives. We know that. He's, in, he's helping to make us Christ-like. He's helping us to learn to live holy lives. He's helping us to be faithful. But sometimes he's just working on our will, isn't he? Every willing. And sometimes it starts with a particular area. He puts a finger on something in my heart that is wrong and says it's time to change. Now, again, I recognize that change isn't instantaneous all the time, but it starts with a surrender, a willingness to submit to his authority in our lives. This portion in Philippians chapter 3 has been one that concerns our growth in the Christ likeness, isn't it? It's the major work God is doing in our lives. Uh, verse 10 has put it in Philippians 3. It's, it begins with knowing and Christ and experiencing him in, his, in the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings. It involves a diligent pursuit of being like him, cooperating with God's molding hand in verses 12 through 14. And in verses 15 through 16, we have seen it's a surrender to God's work through his word as we apply the word of God, no strings attached, no hesitations. And therefore, Hebrews 6.1 tells us this, therefore, leaving the pr discussion of the elementary principles of Christ, let us go on to perfection, maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith towards God. It's time to get beyond the gospel. It's time to learn more of the word of God and the depths of the person of God as revealed to us in his word. 2 Corinthians 7.1 says this, Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Passage after passage after passage encourages us to pursue holiness, Christ-likeness in our lives because God is seeking to form Christ in us. If you're in the book of Hebrews, go back to chapter 3. So we have to ask ourselves of this passage, because this is what Paul says. In fact, the next verse, in verse 17, back in Philippians 3, says, be followers of us. Join us. Get on the growth bus. Get on the pursuit of holiness bus. Lay hold of that one objective along with us in, in, in becoming Christ-like. And the question is, how are we responding to the work of God when he is seeking to mold us and shape us and there's a particular lump in the, in a hard lump in the clay that he wants to soften? Are we surrendered? How are we su su submitted to the word of God? And so too many times without realization, we like to kind of mold and form our own version of the Christian life and, and, and accept things that, and, and re-embrace things that are popular to us and ignore things that are not and find some way to excuse them away. And we do that, we sacrifice some of, the, some of the blessings that God intended for our lives. Here in Hebrews 3, it refers to Israel. And that's the question before them. Would they believe God? That's what it comes down to. This chapter brings it down to one simple concept, that of faith. Do we believe God's word and way is best? Verse 7 says this in regards to Israel. This is talking about Israel back in the wilderness when God wanted them to enter the, enter the rest of the Holy Land and they refused to trust him, to believe his will and way is best because the way looked hard. And I'll tell you what, when you surrender yourself to God, it's, it's, it may seem risky to yourself, to the flesh, because the way may be hard, it may be difficult, it may be challenging, it may be a direction I don't really care to go. And that's what Israel faced when they faced 
the, the promised land. It was full of giants and there's armies and that were well equipped and they were scared to death of taking that step of faith. Verse 7 says, therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts like in the rebellion and the day of, of trial in the wilderness when your fathers tested me, tried me, and saw my works 40 years. Therefore, I was angry with that generation and said they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. So I swore in my wrath they shall not enter my rest. Beware, brethren. Here's the warning based on, on their example. Beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief and departing from the living God. And that's what Paul's warning us against in Philippians chapter 3. This one thing I do, I'm going to believe God. I'm going to cooperate with him. I'm going to respond to him. Beware, he says in verse 12, verse 13, he says, but instead exhort one another daily. There's that concept again we read earlier. And the importance of Christian fellowship to drag each other along, pull each other along, push each other along in our pursuit of this one thing. Exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. And I believe sin there may refer to some of the big, dark, ugly sins that we know enslave people, but I think it would be the sin of unbelief, the sin of independence, the sin of running my own show, the sin of doing things my way, the sin of filtering God's word through my approval mechanism, rather than just simply saying, Lord, you're right. I believe. I trust you. And that makes me nervous, Lord, but I know I'm in good hands. We'll jump on to verse 16. Well, we can go on. Verse 14. For, for we have become partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end, while it is said, Today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who, having heard, rebelled? Indeed, was it not all who came out of Egypt, led by Moses? Now, with whom was he angry forty years? Was not it those who had sinned, whose carcasses fell in the wilderness? And to whom he sware that they would not enter his rest, but to those who did not obey, but they did not enter in because of unbelief. That's the sin God's identifying in this passage that hardens us, unbelief. And we don't cooperate with the process Paul is identifying and exampling for us in Philippians chapter 3. It's really a matter of unbelief. It's a believing that I can call my shots better than God can. Yet when we, when we know that this is our tendency, to harden our hearts to the things of God, to live independent from God. Paul says, this one thing I do. I, lay, I, I, I pursue diligently, eagerly, determinedly the things of God because I believe God's word is always best for me. And that's the work God is doing in our hearts. It begins with, with a living what we know today, pursuing Christ to know him in our lives, and then cooperating with God in the pursuit of holiness as he draws us in grace. Let's pray. Father, we're so thankful that you are a faithful Father. And Father, that you are at work in our lives to make us like Christ. Thank you that you're also a merciful Father, a compassionate Father. You understand that we haven't attained. You know we're dust. But thank you that you're also an empowering God. And you, give us, you have given us in your grace the ability and opportunity to live holy lives. And Father, we pray that our hearts would be perfect towards you. May that be our desire, Father to confess sin when it's revealed to us, to surrender when changes, when you seek to make changes in our lives, to be pliable in your hands, to believe your way is best. Father, may these basic principles of our, of our lives be revealed in our lives. May we be willing 
to know your word, to do your will. And may you be eager to speak to us. It's a glorious place to be, Father. It's a place you're going to bring us for all eternity. And it's a process you've begun in our life today. May we cooperate and may you accomplish it at, at your pace, by your grace and for your glory. So apply these things now to our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. You'll take your hymnals and turn to page 640.